Welcome back to the program. Perhaps it's the idea of 1.3 billion people, or that half a billion have moved out of poverty in such a short time. Perhaps it's that China has moved so rapidly to become the world's second largest economy. Or perhaps it's the environmental degradation that's been left in the wake of those accomplishments. Perhaps it's all of these things and more that often block our view of the humanity of China. Yet it is a nation of individuals, individuals with stories, aspirations, and ambitions. People who have learned to deal with the contradictions and disconnects between a vibrant 21st century economic system and a backwards almost 19th century political system. Ironic, I suppose, that it even sounds a little like the U.S. In the resolution of that disconnect, though, may lie the future of China, America, and even the world as we know it. That's the journey that Evan Osnos takes us on in his new book, Age of Ambition. Evan Osnos is a staff writer at The New Yorker, where he served as the China correspondent from 2008 to 2013. He's the winner of two Overseas Press Club Awards and the Asia Society's Osborne Elliott Prize for excellence in journalism on Asia. It is my pleasure to welcome Evan Osnos here to talk about Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China. Evan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Great to have you here. One of the things that you remind us of in Age of Ambition, and that it's so easy to forget in all the big numbers and all the dramatic things that have taken place in China, is that it is a nation of people and that there's a human side to all of this, which really in so many ways drives the agenda, drives what's happening in China today. You're absolutely right. I think perhaps, like a lot of people, when I first encountered China, it was through the lens of these sweeping declarations and statistics, which of course are accurate. We're talking about one-fifth of humanity. And And yet when you move there and you get involved in the daily lives of people, what you discover is that in many ways the kinds of things that people feel most acutely are are the intimate changes, the perceptual changes, the small changes in their lives, which in some ways can remind us of the changes in our own lives, and they, they look a lot more familiar. And one of the things that is part of all of this change that has taken place, certainly where it seems to be leading today, is this notion you talk about of people wanting to take more control over their lives. Yeah, if you think back historically, there really wasn't much room for the individual in Chinese cosmology. I mean, as a philosophical matter or a political matter. I mean, as recently as the end of the 19th century, for instance, if a person was put on trial in China, then oftentimes the punishment was collective. It applied to the neighbors and it applied to the people who were in charge of the village. Or if you looked at Chinese art, for instance, very often you would see these spectacular landscapes. uh, And it was a system. It had mountains and it had water. And then the individual, the people, if they were people in the image, it would be these tiny little figures. And you compare that, of course, to the Mona Lisa, which is a full frame portrait. And so in some ways, there has been over the course of the last 30 years, as people have been unshackled in a sense from the collective economy, and that's the term they use in Chinese. The term is songbang, which means literally to unfasten a prisoner or an animal. And what's interesting about that, that's how it feels to people. All of a sudden, they have to decide where they're going to work and what kind of job they're going to have and where they're going to invest their money and where they're going to travel and where they're going to put their kids in school. And that has created this, all of a sudden, this enormous range of choices in their personal and economic lives. 
For so long, the culture was about fitting in and really not standing out in any way. That's right. I mean, if you think back to, for instance, the most the most emphatic expression of conformity that we've really ever seen in history was the Cultural Revolution, a period in which, over the course of 10 years, the country threw itself into this extraordinary and very destructive period of enforcing ideological and political conformity. And um, that was a period in which if you said something that was at odds with the orthodoxy at the time, for instance, if you dared to criticize Chairman Mao, or even if you dared to criticize in any way or to ask questions about things, then you were, pu- you were put, obviously, at great personal risk, and people were exiled internally. In China today, there are enormous restrictions, and we'll talk about that. But within the realm of what's possible, people have gotten accustomed to staking out room of their own, ideas of their own, distinctive, idiosyncratic style of their own, particularly young people. And so that's just a radical change from the past. And while all of this fits nicely with the economic change and the entrepreneurial change that we've seen, it doesn't fit so well with the authoritarian rule that is still very much a part of China. That's it. And that's the heart of of what interested me so much about China over the last eight years that I've been living there is that you have this incredible contrast between this sudden sense of aspiration and possibility in people's economic and personal lives, but in their political lives, the system remains very much the Marxist-Leninist system that it has been since the revolution in 1949. So for instance, you know, you today you can go online and you can decide, for instance, if you go onto a Chinese dating site, you can make all kinds of incredibly specific choices about the person you want to find in the world. And yet, when it comes to your political life, there really is one choice, after all. And, you know, not to oversimplify it, but it is a remarkable contrast in the ways in which people have taken control of certain elements of their lives, but other things remain out of reach, and they feel that difference very acutely. And in that disconnect, talk a little bit about what it's created in individuals in China and the unsettling nature of having both of those things playing out at the same time and how the Chinese have been able to keep those two ideas going simultaneously. Sure, I'll give you an example. There's a a young man who I met a few years ago whose name is Tang Jie, who's an interesting guy, very well educated. He was getting a PhD in Western political philosophy from Fudan University, which is one of the great schools in Shanghai. And Tang Jie was, by his own description, an ardent patriot, a real nationalist, a believer that the Chinese government has delivered to its people this economic success story. And, you know, it's worth remembering, he, after all, has grown up only in a period of of prosperity. He was born in the early 1980s, after the incredible political turbulence and, 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 and violence of the 70s and the 60s. So he's grown up in this period in which he feels proud of the Chinese story. So he, he started a company that he called, he described it to me as, I want this to be the Chinese nationalist YouTube. And it was it was a technology company in which you could go online and you could find videos and articles and, and cartoons that promoted essentially the story of China's uh, economic progress and political system. Anyway, it got so big and it was so, um, it was so active that eventually the government said, you know, we're not exactly sure we want this going on, and they shut it down. And so he found himself in this very awkward position where he was, after all, 
You know, he was the, the truest of true believers, but he had run up against the limits of what the government can accommodate for independent political and economic activity. And, um, and so I asked him, I said, don't you, does this make you doubt the system that you've been so fiercely protective of against criticism from the West? And he said, well, no, I think in this case it went, it went too far. But he believes fundamentally in it. But if you think about that, that you know that's an, that's a that's a, a remarkable position to be in, where his own personal aspiration to become a a nationalist techno, technology leader had run right up against the limits of the authoritarian uh, mindset. And perhaps this was easy to easier to navigate when there was double digit growth in China and things kept improving. Now that the economy is becoming more mature, that growth is in the single digits, how does this start to play out now, and what pressures does it create on the government? Well, it creates enormous pressure. I think you hit on the key point, Jeff, which is that over the last 30 years, really over the period in which China has been growing so fast that the economy has doubled in size every seven or eight years, the people have been willing to accept uh, the kind of uh, restrictions on their lives that that they might not res- accept if their standard of living was not improving. So, you know, over the, the the bargain has been quite clear that the Communist Party made with its people. The bargain was, allow us to stay in power and we will allow you to get rich. You know, Deng Xiaoping said, uh, let one group of people get rich first and, and then everyone will follow. That was his dictum. And the problem is is that now that the economy is slowing down, people are becoming less forgiving of the kinds of constraints on their decision-making, the sort of interferences that come with authoritarianism. So, for instance, you know, if you file a lawsuit in a Chinese court, the truth is that every judge in China is subject to ultimately to the control of the Communist Party. That's, that's the nature of the political system. So it, it, things can work okay unless you run up against, for instance, somebody who has uh, powerful political connections. And in that case, then they're able to manipulate the system such that they can win the case. So people might have been willing to put up with those kinds of idiosyncrasies if they were making 10% more in income every year. But now that things are slowing down, I think we're going to see a period in which the kinds of friction that has been created by uh, by state capitalism, uh, that we're going to start to see those thrown into sharper relief. And I think we should anticipate that China's political system will, China's political scene uh, is probably in for, um, I would say, a, a difficult few years ahead. Of course, what governments do in those situations, and we see China doing it now, and it's nothing historically unusual, is resort to nationalism as a way to kind of whip the country together. Yeah, and that we've seen that happening in China. I watched it. It became a, um, a subject that I paid a lot of attention to over the last few years was that as things slow down, one of the ways that you can ensure some unity is by hearkening back to a glorious past or by organizing people to focus on what they perceive as the threats that are presented from abroad. In China's case, that means if we're talking about the past, they talk about, for instance, Japan's role in World War II when it occupied parts of the Chinese mainland and committed uh, what the Chinese can consider to this day to be unaddressed uh, crimes during the, during wartime, and as a result, um, oftentimes every few months, and I think we should expect to see more of this. There are, for instance, protests that break out on the subject of of Japan, and these days, China and its neighbors are coming into greater confrontation over, for instance, 
disputed territory in the East China Sea and in the South China Sea. And one of the things that I think is is worth thinking about is as China continues, as the economy continues to slow down, it's very likely that we'll see that these kinds of contests over disputed islands, for instance, will become of, of, they'll, they'll move to the center of Chinese political life because they are one of the issues around which the government can mobilize people. And that can create problems also for us in the United States because, after all, we are allies with some of these countries on China's perimeter. In the cafes and in, at the proverbial water cooler, what are the Chinese people talking about today? I think that's one of the things that's so interesting, Jeff, is that you know we can, there is this political conversation which we were just talking about, and that's a serious one, and it's one one worth worth noting and following. But when you get into people's lives, the things that they're thinking about might ring uh, might sound familiar to us. For instance, if you are a Chinese family today, if you're a young couple with with one child, for instance, or you might have two children under some. Uh, even though there's a one-child policy in China, there are ways in which you can have two children. And so one of the things you're thinking about is, how do I get my kids into the right school so that they have the opportunities to get ahead? And can I afford that school? In China, for instance, public schools now come with oftentimes what's known as a sponsorship fee, which in effect is privatizing an education system that had been before that open uh, more open to all. Um, if you have parents who are getting older, for instance, people talk about the problems of getting health care for their parents and being able to do it in a way that is economically possible. And then, of course, the third thing, and, and this will, I think, sounds very familiar to us right now in America, is the opportunity gap, the income gap. In China today, the gap between the richest and the poorest is wider than it's been at any point since the founding of the People's Republic in 1949. It's now the difference between, for instance, New York and Ghana, to put it in perspective. And so people are very aware of the fact that this country, which is still, after all, run by a communist party, now has, in fact, uh, an income structure that looks much more like the United States than it does like the Soviet Union. What we've been talking about is really China from the inside out, the internal issues that the country is facing. To what extent does this same disconnect, this confusion between the political on the one hand and the economic on the other, to what extent is that driving how other nations and other people see China and how they interact with it and will interact with it in the coming years? I think that's one of the key points and one of the reasons for writing this book in the first place is trying to give people abroad a sense that the lived experience, the individual experience in China is actually moving in a direction uh, that is closer to us. And I think that's important because it's easy these days as we as we take stock of China's national ambitions, which is which are, in fact, uh, to take a more expansive position in the world, to take a more uh, muscular position, to defend China's political interests, for instance, in these kinds of diplomatic and, and territorial disputes, that at the very same moment that that's happening, I think it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that on the ground, when you spend time with people, the questions they have of you are, for instance, how do I get my kid into boarding school in the United States? Or if I go to Europe, which cities should I visit? And if I go to Europe, will I be able to order off a menu, for instance? Very kind of, in many ways, vulnerable. And I think um, in some ways, it's, it's experiences that 
that remind us of periods in our own American history when, whether it was at the end of the 19th century when we were growing so fast or whether it was in the 1950s when we suddenly got air travel and started to travel abroad for the first time. Over and over again in my years in China, I was struck by how how we have never been closer in our lived experience. And yet at the same moment, our governments are finding themselves in greater confrontation. And my hope is that by understanding what it feels like to be Chinese, that we can fill out the portrait of China uh, in greater detail. And at the heart of that is this idea that you talk about with respect to what the Chinese dream is and how it's not that dissimilar from the American dream. No, it's not. You know, the Chinese dream is a concept that has just bubbled to the surface in the last few years, and it's by design. I mean, the government, which the, the current government came to power at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, the president, Xi Jinping, is in his own way a kind of more modern figure than his predecessor. He's more modern in the sense that he recognizes that he's being judged in real time. And so he's got, the, he, he they've come up with a sort of political messaging that would be more sophisticated. It could sort of fit into a congressional race in the United States. He talks about, for instance, the importance of the Chinese dream, which he says is the dream of the great renewal of the nation. And this gets to that point I mentioned earlier, which is about this return to nationalism and the idea that the country after this long and, and very difficult century of civil war and, uh, and uh, upheaval is now finally returning to its place as a, a dominant civilization in the great family of nations. The problem for him, however, is that when you talk to people in China, well, they'll say, well, my Chinese dream, for instance, is to be able to go visit my son in Singapore, or my Chinese dream is to be able to win this court case without the interference of outsiders. And so there's a collision, in a sense, between this state-conceived, state-imposed Chinese dream, which is a dream of pulling people together under the leadership of the Communist Party, with the reality that people have decided, actually, it's up to me to decide what my Chinese dream is. That's, that's one of the things that I'm entitled to. And that's the, that's the big collision that um, I think is going to shape, in many ways, the years ahead. And how is that driven by the Chinese people's connection to the rest of the world? It is, after all, the world's largest Internet community. Yeah, this has been one of the more transformative effects. If you think about how much the Internet has affected our own lives and, and transformed the way we do things, just it, imagine how it feels to be a Chinese person who was, until recently, in a much, much more isolated environment than, than even we were before the Internet. So if you were in a village, for instance, you had no idea if there were people outside who shared your interests, whether it was in literature or in sports or whatever it is, but you now are able to go online and, and find this this dispersed community of like-minded people. And that has a powerful effect on how you see yourself as a citizen. And of course, that also uh, goes overseas. And so, you know, it's not, for instance, it's not uncommon for people in China to be, be very aware of what's going on in the United States. And it gets a little distorted from far away. But the truth is, people can go online in China, and they're watching House of Cards, and they're watching Big Bang Theory, which was a sitcom that was very popular in China until very recently. And and yet, they're, at the same time, these sometimes run up against what the government can accept. And so, for instance, people will be tied into the rest of the world, but then all of a sudden, just it was actually just uh, recently, the government said, all right, the show Big Bang Theory, which is the most popular one among young Chinese people, they're removing it from the Internet. 
and they didn't really say why. There was a, a couple of theories. One said, well, they don't, they don't want it to be seen. They want to be able to put a sanitized version on television. Somebody else said, well, no, it's because they want to be able to get rid of other Western TV shows, so they had to do them all at once. But the reality is, is that for, if you're a Chinese person in your, in your 20s, you're not accustomed to having these kinds of things done to you the way that your parents might have been. And so you have less tolerance for it. And so you've seen that there is this tension between this young, more internationalized, more urbane population and a political system which in some ways has not been able to keep up with the dynamism of its own people. Which means that the accommodations that the political system has to make have to be about real change as opposed to just the language of change. And this is the hard part for them, because in the end, this is a political system that is designed to survive. It is designed to protect the uh, position of the Communist Party. They believe, and this is not a, I mean, it's not a, let, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. This is not a cynical argument in the sense that, look, there are leaders of the Communist Party today who say, we have managed to allow more people in the history of the world to pull themselves out of poverty over the last 35 years than any other political system. And they take enormous pride in that. And the fact is, they have been able to deliver immense, immense improvements in quality of life and education. And the Chinese people today live more educated and healthier lives. But the truth is that it is also now looking like an antique. It is out of step with the kinds of, with the kinds of sort of modern, uh, the day-to-day uh, realities of, of being a, a sophisticated modern person in China. And so the political system is struggling with whether it can make the kinds of adaptations that we're talking about. For instance, giving people real rule of law, real courts, where they could uh, settle their disputes, whether they can do that and, and not lose political power at the same time. And that's the, that's the crux where we find ourselves. And if you, on the ground, I was in China uh, just a few weeks ago, and, and uh, of the, you know, I've been studying the place for 20 years. I've been going there for a long time. And I, I have to say, I have not felt uh, a sense of unease as strongly as I did these days, unease among Chinese friends and, and counterparts. There is a real sense that this moment has reached um, that that the that that contradiction that conflict I'm talking about between aspiration and authoritarianism has reached some sort of reckoning point, and there has to be some sort of change if things are going to continue to uh, move ahead. Evan Osnos, his book is Age of Ambition: Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China. Evan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 